Hello, everyone. My name is Nahum Siegel, and welcome to JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent conversations we've had on JM and the AM. We start with Howard Jonas. He was a guest of ours recently. He is CEO of IDT, a serial entrepreneur and a great philanthropist, and author of a brand new book, My Conversation with Howard Jonas, right now on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, a couple of days back, I had an opportunity to sit down at the IDT headquarters in Newark, New Jersey with Howard Jonas, author of the book, I'm Not the Boss, I Just Work Here. That conversation is next at JM in the AM. Howard Jonas is with us. Howard Jonas is a successful serial entrepreneur, best known for founding IDT, a multi-billion dollar international telecommunications corporation at the age of 33, and he has served as chairman since its inception. He actively supports several charities nationally in his community and serves as a trustee on numerous university, hospital, Jewish, and social social service organization boards. He is author of the book, I Am Not the Boss, I Just Work Here, which is an update of the uh, book by the same title that came out uh, almost 20 years ago. Mr. Howard Jonas, thank you for welcoming us into your IDT headquarters here in Newark, New Jersey. Thanks for coming. A pleasure. Why did the book need an update? Uh, a lot of people over the years have, uh, you know, I wrote two books. One was like a bigger book on business, right. but nobody ever calls me about that one. Um, but a lot of people over the years, you know, people, particularly people who are depressed, um, have called me up, um, you know, come to visit, maybe almost even, you know, one every couple of weeks. And the book's been out of print for so long, and um, I had a good relationship with Corin, and I said, why don't you publish the book again? They said, okay. So um, I, I, I thought it would help people. I don't, Major uh, differences from the first time around, or, or virtually no difference in between now and the first time around? There's a very interesting um, like introduction update about you know all the things that have gone on since. Right. Um, you know, one of the things the book was about was going through depression. And you're using and the term clinically. You're not just cl- cl- clinical right. depression. And um, it was actually a baby depression compared to one that I had after I wrote the book. Right. So you know, I, I like sort of glossed over that. Uh, we're here together during a very interesting week because in addition to so many of your pursuits in the business and social world, telecommunications, natural gas, uh, medical research, comics animation, movies, um, uh, politics, radio stations even, you've dabbled in a lot of things over the years. The politics thing must be prominent for you this week with the change that's going on in Washington D.C. Do you worry, and, and you said to us back in 2004, when we did the interview the first time this book was released, you said to us you have a love for this country. You love the United States of America. You went into a, a, a long um, uh, monologue at that time on the air about a visit you had recently been to the Rocky Mountains and what the United States means to you in general, especially the New York area. Do you fear for the future of this country? Yeah, everybody worries about their children, you know, like how their life is going to be and how they'll grow up and stuff and, um, you know, about their parents. Um, So, of course I worry, but I think the future is bright. I I think our best days are ahead of us. I mean, this has been a little bumpy patch. Yeah. um, But it's just a bumpy patch. I mean, people are making 
more of it than it needs to be for, you know, political advantage on one side or the other. So there's no need to call Chuck Wallace yet? Because um, you might re- right, 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 right. I said he's going to hide me during the revolution. <laughs> Correct, because you uh-huh. may recall that Chuck, as you wrote in your book, who was a black friend of yours in the seventh grade, said that he'll make sure you'd be treated well after the Black Panthers seize control of the country. After the revolution. Right. Well, you know, somebody asked me the other day, you know, have I ever seen it this bad? Um, and I said, yeah, the late 60s right. were like now. Um, well, you have you one know, paragraph the, the, that would that describes the late '60s. It looks even worse than what we have now, frankly. I, I, you know, I was younger, so I, I maybe didn't understand as many aspects of it. But um, the country will be fine. I, I mean, I hope our relationship with Israel will be as good. Um, I hope we do as many good things. But. Um, there are a lot of things wrong in the country, but we'll fix them. It's, it's interesting because there's so many who support Republican politics. I don't think it's a secret that that's generally your preference. Right. Uh, there are so many who worry about the future, worry if there ever can be another Republican president, the way the demographics are going in this country, wonder now that the Senate essentially is Democratic. I know it's even, but you get my point. Uh, and, and, of course, the House is Democratic. And wondering all three all three houses of government are now democratic. You know, what does that mean for the immediate future? But you are painting a very optimistic picture. For somebody who's, who's known for battling depression, that's a, that's a good sign for all of us that you are <laughs> looking at this in such a positive way. Look, um, <laughs> I mean, the, the Republicans pick, picked up a huge number of seats you know, in the House. Um, They won most of the Senate elections. Um, They would have won Georgia, too, if the president wasn't, you know, didn't spend the whole campaign pretending that he won. Um, You know, and and they ran that running with him. Um, You know, if they would have been running with Reagan, it would have been a landslide. Um, So I'm, I'm not worried about the... Um, the goodness or the uh, the rationality of of the people in this country, um, it, it'll it'll be good. Wow. Uh, Howard Jonas with us. The book is called "I'm Not the Boss. I Just Work Here." Uh, a reference, of course, to the one above being the real boss, right? Just to make it clear for our listeners, uh, it's a Toby Press release from Cora, and you can go to tobypress.com. Tobypress.com. Seventeen years ago, one of the uh, conversations we had was in my studio, and at that point, when this book had just come out, and at that point you said that you were preparing for a year in Israel. And when I asked you why you would embark on that, you said because you believe, based on your research, that if you as a, as a couple, you and your wife and, and your small kids at that point, spent a year in Israel, chances are that a good number of your own children will plant their own roots eventually in Israel. Is that what happened? I must have been smarter when I was younger than now. Um, yeah, in fact, um, uh, three of two of my children live there now right. with um, with the, the families. Um, one daughter had cancer this year, um, and so you know we brought her in to treat her at, at uh, Sloan Kettering and so forth. Um, and she's going back in February, so that'll be three. Wow. Um, 
That's great. My to hear. oldest daughter is making Aliyah in um, in the summer with her family, so that will be four of nine. Um, my uh, my fifth son, my you know middle child, and his wife told us that they're. Uh, now I don't say it's happening for a hundred percent, but said that they're planning to move to Renana in uh, in the summer. And I have a, uh, you know, um, of the other four, you know, one served in the IDF. It's a chance, you know, after medical school or whatever, he, he would go back. Um, uh, I, I, the, the majority of our kids, yeah. I, I, th- I, th- I think it's so. The majority of our kids will wind up living there. In hindsight, it worked. And, and would, you, would you all these years later attribute it to that, or there are many other factors? Well, you know, you took them there every summer, right. Zionists at home. It's also a great country. It sells yeah. itself. Um, it does sell itself, well. You know, you want to be part of Jewish history, not just watch it. Right. So, Have um, you been able to visit Israel during COVID? I'm, I don't know if that's, <laughs> if that's a <laughs> private matter that I should ask about, but I'm just curious if you've been able to be there over the, la- be there I, over I, the last I, year. I, I was able to get there. I was able to get a pass to get there for four days. And I overstayed the pass by a couple of days, and then they banned me from the country for me for a year. So they recently said um, they reinstated they're, they're, they're lifting the ban, and I, <laughs> I, can, I can come back. Um, so, uh, so we we just um, you know the list of people who've been banned from the state of Israel. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> me, 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 me and, the, and the guy around the mafia. Exactly, yeah, right. that's what I was about uh, to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what, I forget his name. I'll uh, think of it in a second. Um, I have a check of his. In I my should office. know it because he's a Lower East Sider. I should know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, we 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 just bought a like a a, a beach house in um, Kazaria. Yeah. Kazaria. So you know, my wife. So we're planning to spend you know four or five months a year there, starting when this ever this thing ends. But right. but starting with Perm this year. So. Um, these got the one-year anniversary of COVID in this country. Yeah. Um, Howard Jonas is with us. It must be interesting for you with everything that you've explored and invested in when it comes to medical research to see what's happened over the last year, what the president, uh, President Trump, did in terms of Operation Warp Speed. You can give us an opinion if you think it went well or not. And what's going on now as people are desperate for vaccinations in this country and either the supply is not there or the organization is not there. How do you view what's happening right now after all the attention you've given to medical research in that department over the last few years? I'm very happy that, you know, Big Pharma came to the rescue, um, the only competent people in this whole thing. Um, Whenever I've never seen the government. I mean, I've always felt government is incompetent. You know, I'm sort of uh, a libertarian, but... I've never seen anything like this, um, you know, but especially since the vaccine came out, like with all their list of priorities, who to get it first and how to hand it out, like they've ensured that nobody gets it. Right. Like all they should have done is just send it to CVS and everybody would be injected. Right. Um, and people would line up and they wouldn't care how many hours it would take. They know they'd eventually get it. Right, right. So I, I, it, it's it's. It's difficult to believe, like, you know, almost every state, you know, it, it's hard. I mean, it has to be, like, almost from heaven. Like, it's it's almost impossible that there could be this level of incompetence 
so broadly spread, like in all 50 states almost. So, like if, God, so if God, as we know, is in fact the boss, right, right, as you indicate on your cover, he not only can make sure things go well, he could also supervise or instill incompetency uh, here as well when it comes to certain things. If he feels it's appropriate, yeah, maybe he's trying to make everybody libertarian. I don't know, <laughs> um, you know, but it's 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 beyond belief. Um, we did get you know the shot at Paul Care, and two days after we got the right. shot, it was like the the organization that gave it to it is illegal, and right. you know, obtained so it so illegally or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Um, has there been? We know that one of your um, a key interest is cancer research and literally trying to find a cure for cancer. And I read recently that that there's actually been uh, an advance under your um, uh, under your research team, I guess we would say, in, in treating pancreatic cancer. Now, for right. those of us familiar with cancers, that's one of the worst. And the reason I say it like that, because obviously all of them are terrible, but I say it like that because there's been so little one can do for a pancreatic cancer patient over the last uh, couple of decades. What type of advances have we made in that area? We, we you know, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to in any way get the FDA upset by, you know, because we're going to be co- coming to them for approval this year by, right. you know, approving an unapproved drug. But they do allow you, you know, they have been allowing us to give the drug on compassionate care. Um, Has it to, worked? To people come to us. And we, we've had phenomenal results. Um, you know, quite a, you know, I mean, some people have had complete remissions, which never happens, um, you know, and pancreatic and, you know, just, um, you know, some have had, I mean, some of the guys that got the stuff years ago have been, been around like five years. Um, it, it's... Um, uh, I think it, it, it. It's definitely a breakthrough. It's not um, a breakthrough for everybody. You, you know, like a, a, a large percentage of our patients do very well. Um, you know, a smaller percentage seem to be able to return to their normal lives. Um, but we we've had very positive indications, you know, with our research that we're going to be able to, um, you know, in- increase the number of people that are able to go back to a normal life, have a much longer life. Will it help with other cancers, those that are either stage four, and usually we, we assume there's not much hope, or other cancers that, again, liver cancer and others that are just, that don't have much progress yet when it comes to cures? We've been doing very well in the digestive tract, so we're doing well with bil- 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 biliary and um, and uh, colorectal. Um, we're doing well with blood cancers, with AML and lymphomas. We haven't gone after the uh, you know the company was around for a long time before I took it over, right. so. The uh, patent protection isn't that um, doesn't last that much longer. So if you if you if you get often drug designation, if you're working on diseases that you know affect less than seventy thousand people a year, mm-hmm. whatever um, the hundred thousand, whatever the number is, the, the FDA will give you an often drug designation, and then if you get approved, you get seven to seven and a half years exclusivity. Right. So we've stayed away from the very big cancers um, like breast and, and lung because 
we wouldn't have any protection dealing with mm-hmm. them anyway. So, so we don't actually know um, how we would do with breast, b- with uh, with breast um, and lung cancer, lung or brain. Yeah. But on all the other ones, um, not all the other ones, but but on on most of the ones we've tested, it's been very effective because we're going after the um, the part of the cell that makes energy. Um, and the mitochondrion. Uh, is it all about money? In other words, you are surrounded by so many amazing experts who, if they just had the funds, they'd be able to get to the finish line on these things? Or is it not only about the money? No, it's, you know, I mean, the, the drug itself, like, God must have, I mean, the only possibility is God sent this drug because, you know, it came from the most unlikely scientists and, you know, with the, uh, it's just a miracle. Um <laughs> But on the second stage, you know, of making it better, what we've actually done is we've gone, like, to the very best scientists in the world who, you know, are, like, in Princeton and Penn and Rockefeller University and so forth, and we sort of have, you know, co-opted them and the whole institutions to get involved in this. And then, you know, so you you constantly have to be working the politics of, you know, what Princeton will let you do and what, you know, this university will let you do and to get all the professor's time and to hire his best you know, graduate students to work for you so that he concentrates on it more and so forth, which, you know, I don't think Big Pharma has the time to, you know, hold right. hold these. They're not bad people. I'm saying prima donnas right. in, the, in, the, in the sense of ballet. They, they you know, need, but to, to, they hold need, the, to hold their hands. You right. know, they need the, colleagues to do, take care of that stuff for them. They need other people who yeah, you need work people to alongside take care. them, right? Right, and I, and I like to hold right. the hands of, like, geniuses who, you know, <laughs> what, who need, God, a God, hand, need a little hold hand. need a little hold Howard Jodas is here. I'm not the boss. I just work here as the book. Um, It's funny. So much of this conversation, we're talking about Big Pharma for obvious reasons because of the cancer research and because COVID vaccinations are now so prominent in our lives and so important in our lives. Yet you make the point that when it comes, if I'm understanding it correctly, when it comes to your own situation um, that you went through, clinical depression, again, you're willing to speak to and help whoever you can in this area, the less medication you found, the better off you were. Yes. Do you sometimes worry that in this area, and I know it's hard to make a generalization, people need to take this with a grain of salt, but do you sometimes think that, that this country sometimes in situations like that are over-medicated? Oh, that, that, I mean, yeah, the people are definitely over-medicated, and, you know, and I, I think, listen, it helps some people, but a lot of people, once they get on it, they, you know, they never get off it, they become sort of dull and everything, but we, you know, we looked at, um, we looked at buying a drug that was an anti-suicidal drug, you know, that had like a pretty good record as an anti-suicidal drug, and when I was talking to the scientists involved, like how it works, he says, they all work the same way. He says, they, you know, you, you, you make either less serotonin or more serotonin or more dopamine or less dopamine, and that's the only two things we know how to do. So, you know, every single drug in this field is just, you know, a different combination of switching your serotonin and dopamine. And I think you're best off not switching it. I mean, I've, I've found, you know, you... You know, with dopamine, if you increase the dopamine, you feel better for a little bit. Um, certainly, if you increase it, if you have Parkinson's, you'll feel better for a couple of years before it falls off completely. Um, 
but it does quickly fall off, you know, in, in the psychological diseases, and the same thing with the serotonin, and then, you know, you become dependent on it, um, you know, all different parts of your brain stop functioning, um, you know, your desires and stuff, so, um, and also psychiatric profession, horrible profession, I mean, the, the, there's a, a huge brain-body connection, so, you know, it could be that your pineal gland's now working, or it could be that um, your thyroid's now working, or it could be, um, uh, I'm trying to think of all the different glands there are, but they're, they're all different things right. that, y y you know, I mean, it could be a problem with your liver. Um, but, like, when is the last time that a psychiatrist ever gave you a blood test or took off a thesoscope to see, you know, how your heart is doing and so forth? Right. Um, so, so would, the, yeah. it's terrible. These guys go to medical school for four years, um, and then they study psychiatry for three years, and then all they do is give you pills, you know, and sometimes talk to you. Um, and I would guess half the time, you know, if they would treat like the underlying physical problem or a physical problem that may have come as a result and is then, you know, feeding the problem, they, they could make you better. But um, I think there's like one psychiatrist in the country who might be an endocrinologist. You know, it's just, um, you know, it's a disgrace. I mean, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be allowed to be called doctors because they don't function as doctors. They so, should, they're, they're magicians. So you, you know? attribute your recovery to whatever medication helped you and what else? Were there other keys as well? I think I reached bottom and, you know, some place at the bottom, like I got back some self-confidence, like, you know, I dumped the medicine, like, you know, God help me to, to, um, to pick myself up. Um, uh, I did, I did um, start to take a lot of this anti-aging kind of stuff and, you know, start to pay more attention to, you know, my health and hormones and running and so forth and so on. I, 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 I don't think too many people get better from psychiatric diseases sitting talking to their psychiatrist. You know, um, I, uh, it's funny because you tell the story, the joker, about the guy with the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That uh, you know, it, it's his decision what he wants to have for lunch every day. Don't complain if you if you're the one making your own lunch and you keep making a lunch you don't enjoy. Right. Well, you know, what are people really to do? You know, because I, the, I, I mean, it's not like if you get to get you know, depression, you see your cardiologist, you know, that would be insane. Um, you know, there's really nobody else who, who treats it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think that, I, I don't think um, psychiatry is often the solution. Right. By the way, his name is Meyer Lansky. Who, Meyer Lansky, yes. Who, of yes. course, never forgave the state of Israel. In specific, I think... Um, um, Minister Borg, he never forgave for, for keeping him, for what he felt was abandoning him and keeping him out of Israel. Uh, finally, what are these strong business interests today? We've, uh, if you look at the book, and everybody should get it, I'm not the boss, I just work here. You mentioned some of the things you've been involved with. Uh, as I said earlier on the list, there were things like movies and comics and animation and uh, medical research we touched on, natural gas, which was something you pursued uh, around the time we first spoke about this. 
Uh, telecommunications is obvious. What, what's dominating your workday these days? Well, you know, I think when you turn something over to somebody, like you have to let them be in charge. So my, my, my elder son, Shmuel, runs IDT. And they do very well in, uh, you know, in telecom, in international money wiring, in cloud, um, cloud storage and cloud services, um, and in uh, point-to-purchase terminals at, like, all the bodegas and stuff. Um, and he, he asked me to give him advice, um, but, you know, it's a... You know, they're closing in on a couple billion dollars a year in revenue. They're doing well. Uh, my son-in-law, Michael, runs the energy business. Um, I think we're closing in on about a half million accounts worldwide that we provide, you know, electric and gas to. Um, we're also recycling oil and stuff in Israel and, you know, hope to be doing that around the world. Um, the entertainment company... Um, it's it's picking up. Um, you know, we we have a show on Netflix and one on Apple and one on uh, uh, Sci-Fi. Um, and you know, once COVID gets over, we'll be able to, to do more shows. Right. And, um, but the, you know, people are sitting home reading books and doing puzzles, so the business is doing you know n better. Nice. Um, the uh, the only business not doing real well right now is our original business. You know, we still distribute brochures to hotel lobbies, um, you know, for tourist attractions. So um, That was the original business? That's the original business. And that's, you know, nobody's, you know, COVID is still keeping people out of hotels. <laughs> right. But, uh, but I'm, I'm very optimistic for, you know, like after the vaccine. Yeah, I have people a feeling. Go back to travel. Everyone, and not just go back. I think the world's going to be anxious to just go somewhere and do things. I, I think so. I mean, like a biggest... You know, our biggest single, we do it all over the country, but the biggest single group of attractions are the Broadway shows. Right. And, I, you know, I think there'll be huge pent-up demand to see Broadway shows when, Agreed. you know, when it's all over. So how's the boss doing? Is the uh, boss, the real boss, the one above, has he been uh, very kind, generous? Uh, I think you would say to everybody, not just to you. I think you would say he's kind, benevolent, and generous to everybody. Yeah, I, listen, our daughter got well this year. I mean, she also got married. Um, uh, we have 24 grandchildren, you know, expecting another, um, you know, it, it looks like God willing, like, you know, um, we'll cure some people's cancer. Right. What's the complaint? It's uh, like, it's, uh, it's employ um, a lot of people, which is important. We employ a lot of people. That's very important. Um, and internationally, right? I mean, you're employing people around the world. Right. right around yeah. the world in Israel. Um, it's pretty exciting to get up every day, you know. So, um, I mean, I'm dealing with a guy now who's, uh, he's a, you know, real mentor to me, you know, and maybe the most important guy in pharma. And, um, you know, we're about to, you know, take the company more public or whatever and you know maybe there'll be other companies we'll be negotiating with and i really want this guy with me 
and he just told me, Howard, you know, I'm 75 years old. Like I'm only, you know, I'm 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 almost 75. You know, he says, I'm I'm you know, people only work till they're 75. <laughs> I said, No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, that's ridiculous. He says, Listen, for you, I'm going to give you two years. You know, I'm going to work till you're 76. He says, we can't make any deal past 76. He says, my wife will kill me. You know, like, I said, no, your wife will want you to keep working and so forth. So, you know, I don't know. I'm 64. So, uh, you know, maybe that means I have 11 years. But, um, but you know, right now I don't feel like that the end is in sight. Right. You keep going. And you keep going and doing a lot of things for a lot of people. And your philanthropy is well noted and much appreciated. Uh, the book is called I'm Not the Boss. I just work here. Howard Jonas, thank you so much for inviting us here today. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Uh, it's a Toby Press release. Go to tobypress.com. And more coming up uh, here on JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Howard Jonas. Next up, Rabbi Moshe Bamberger. He's got a brand new book. You can go to artscroll.com and check it out. Rabbi Moshe Bamberger on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. J.M. in the A.M. Before I uh, introduce Rabbi Bamberger to everybody, let me remind you that all of Rabbi Bamberger's books are on special this week at theartscroll.com. In order, Rabbi Bamberger has presented over the years the following. Uh, great Jewish letters, great Jewish speeches, great Jewish wisdom, great Jewish treasures, great Jewish classics, and great Jewish photographs. These were all in advance of the most recent work, Great Jewish Journeys to the Past, a spiritual travel guide to Kivrei Tzadikim and Torah landmarks around the world. And those of you out there, again, who want to save on any of Rabbi Bamberger's works, including this brand new one, Great Jewish Journeys, go to artscroll.com. This week and this week only, it is uh, 15% off. Anything by Rabbi Bamberger is 15% off. Uh, no minimum free shipping with promo code Radio. With that in mind, I remind everybody that Rabbi Moshe Bamberger, a respected scholar and educator, has enthralled thousands of readers with his books on great Jewish letters, speeches, photographs, classics, and artifacts. Now he uses his rare talent of capturing a person, an era, or a, a historical event through a brief story or evocative photograph to bring to life the greatest people and epics of Jewish history. Great Jewish Journeys includes hundreds of of photographs, artifacts, postcards, and artwork. It provides fascinating facts and stories about each destination. In addition, of course, uh, to all these works, Rabbi Bamberger is the Mashkiach Ruchani at the Lander College for Men in Queens, New York. Rabbi Moshe Bamberger, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. How are you? Baruch Hashem, doing well. Nice to have you on. Um, you know, it's funny doing this in the context of all your other work, because as a standalone, it would seem that this, the uh, Great Jewish Journeys, uh, is a, um, a, a, a is a uh, a work that is based on the Kivrei Tzadikim, is based on the um, uh, the resting place of so many uh, greats from our history. But when you put it into the context of what you've done already with letters and speeches and classics and treasures, I'm assuming that these kvarim and these photos are just a conduit uh, to um, enlighten people when it comes to important figures and periods of time in Jewish history. Do I have that right? That is perfectly correct, Nachum. <laughs> what I try to do from the onset with this with series is to present Gedele Yisrael from different angles. We've known them through their biographies. We've known them through their uh, scholarship, 
or their svarim that they've written. But uh, I wanted to find different ways of looking at them and trying to get a, an up-close glimpse at exactly who these amazing tzaddikim and tzaddikim were. So the first book, and actually you interviewed me many years ago, I don't know if you remember, but I do, um, <laughs> on Great Jewish Letters. Uh, that was the letters of tzaddikim, uh, letters of Gedalim that they wrote uh, either for important historical reasons or personal reasons. And those letters gave us a very unique and personal view of, of these people. Uh, and that was very well received, Baruch Hashem. Uh, from there, we went on to other uh, to look at Kedalim from other points of view, such as their speeches, uh, their wisdom, which is a smaller book of quotes of Kedalim, very short, captivating quotes set on a beautiful photography. Treasures, which is my personal favorite, uh, was the artifacts of Kedalim, seeing them through the objects that they owned uh, and looking at history from those, uh, those are unique artifacts. Uh, classics, of course, they're Sarim. It's a great resource to be able to understand the Gedalim through the Sarim that they authored. The Photographs uh, is also a very popular book. It's smaller in size, but it goes through uh, the important major photographs and some unknown photographs yeah. of Gedalim with a story and being able to look at them from that perspective. You know, it's funny. Yesterday, I, I have the photographs in my hand, literally. And yesterday, I mentioned, of all of them that we were talking about, I mentioned the photographs book because, there. first of all, I, I, I think the rarity of some of these photos, as you just pointed out, is remarkable. I mean, the, there's so many pictures of really well-known Torah personalities that you include that we've never seen, or at least I think the average person hasn't seen. So that's pretty cool. Right. But in addition to that, I think... When you have a book called Great Jewish Photographs, you can get away with, I say that respectfully, you can get away with printing certain pictures that likely wouldn't get into a regular biography. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes. So yes. you've done that, and that's what makes this book, Great Jewish Photographs, yet another reason why it's so valuable. Now, you got to humor me for a minute. Some of my friends make fun of me about this because there is a fascination, I think that's the right word, if you want to use a stronger word, you can, uh, with Kivrei Tzadikim and traveling there and davening there, which I totally understand and value, although I do always say that it's likely better or, or, or a more enhanced experience in the bigger picture to be at a place like Marat HaMachpelah, our true avot, and, uh, and Davin there, or I think we are encouraged by our halachic decisors, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, that of all of the places to Davin, when it comes to resting places, those of our own relatives, those of our own predecessors, are likely even more important uh, than even all the ones you have in this book. Am I, am, I, am I painting the right picture with that? Yes, I, I would definitely agree with that. Uh, the book, I just wanted to expand it a little bit more broadly, it's not simply a book of Kibbutz Tzadikim. It's also a book of Torah landmarks. Right. So that means that if you're traveling, you know, Kaviyacho, these days we don't know what that is anymore, <laughs> but hopefully we will again soon. Uh, you know, if you're traveling to any place in the world, it's not just that you're traveling to Kibbutz Tzadikim. There might be a base medrash of, let's say, the Baal Shem near the Kever of the Baal Shem. Right. And there might be different uh, fascinating places to go, and I include all of that in the book, including um, the Kaisal HaMarabi in Eretz Yisrael, right. and the Maris HaMachpela, and Kevaracha on right. their own. Uh, the, the, the thrust of the book is Kibre Tzadikim, but I do have special sections 
of the landmarks. But as far as what you're, uh, you were saying, I, I agree with you a thousand percent that, you know, if you could go to the Avis, the Kibre, the Kibre, the Kvarm of the Avis in, in Mars Machpela and in Kabarachal, of course, that is, uh, that is primary. Um, and of course, if you have deceased relatives that, uh, you want to visit, their Chusim are definitely, uh, standing whoever visits them in good stead. But, you know, Rabbi Nassim Sherman Shlita, who wrote the overview, uh, he basically gives us a glimpse into what the importance of visiting Kivrei Tzadikim is on the whole. And he points out something very interesting, that besides for the fact that when you dive in there, the Zchus of the Tzadikim stands you in good stead, um, but there's also an element of, like it says by Kalev, that Haisaruach Acheres Imai, that when he went to the Maris Machpela, right. he actually took with him this chus of the tzaddikim, like he took a piece of them, as it were, with him. Right. And that, that's what happens every time we visit a kever of a tzaddik, is that we're able to sort of take a part of their greatness and their holiness and their uniqueness with us. So the book tries to not just um, tell us where the kever is, and, but, but also to give us unique perspective on that on um, perhaps the end-of-life story involved or something interesting about the Matseva that caught my eye or some, some takeaway that every single person could really be inspired by. Uh, Raimosha Bamberger is with us. Yeah, point well taken. I, just, I sometimes get frustrated, maybe too strong of a word, uh, uh, people who are mocked to go to certain uh, uh, resting places and, and, and might ignore their own families, but that's just a, a personal thing, and I, I think you, you would agree that we should encourage people to, uh, uh, to certainly uh, visit their own relatives whenever possible. Um, one, of the, one of the benefits, and, you know, honestly, I mean, I, I, I say this with the greatest respect, and that is that um, all, only a real investment in a book like this, and I'm talking about financial, um, can produce this type of work. The photographs, the way the pages are, uh, the the coffee table book feel, not to minimize it, because this is not one of those coffee table books that will never be looked at. This is a, a book that'll be, uh, you know, that, that, that'll, uh, that people will find very, very interesting. Uh, but there's a certain look and depth to it, especially the pictures, uh, that make it stand out. I mean, am I right that in order to make this as appealing as it is, one has to make a real investment to get it all right between the photographs and the book itself? Absolutely. And that's where the genius and the vision of Rabbi Meir Zlatowitz, the Chetadik Levrach, really must be mentioned in the context of this series. Uh, when I came to him, I think it was in 2008, uh, with this idea, I had already written other books with Arts Girl on Hallel and on Shevabracha, so we knew each other. But I came with this idea based on a shear that I had been giving in Lander College that year of the letters of Gedalim. And he uh, said that, you know, it's so funny that I should come to him with that idea because he always wanted himself to produce such a book on the Igris and the Ksavim of Gedalim Yisrael. So it was a, like it was a great shidduch right away. And then we discussed further the way the book should be presented. And he agreed with me, or maybe I agreed with him, I don't know, uh, I can't remember anymore so well, but we basically came to the consensus that the only way to produce a book like this would be to do it right, which means to try to do it in full color, to get as many original letters, in the case of the letters book, um, that we can, and try to put as many pictures of Gedalim into the book 
and to make the whole layout with a certain sense of 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 covet and tisaris, which was really yeah. the hallmark of, of Rabbi Zlatowitz and Arts Girl Bichlal, that, you know, whatever they do, they do right. But these books in particular, really, they went full force with them. And, you know, you just have to see it. You know, even if you don't want to buy it, just go into a farm store or a library and just leaf through it and see all of the work that went into making it and all of the pictures and how they were enhanced and they were colorized mm-hmm. and and the lengths that we went to to produce these books is not to be believed. Um, you go through, I mean, there are some obvious places <laughs> that have to be covered when you're talking about Jewish history, and especially Jewish history that you want to bring out uh, through the uh, uh, through these holy places. Uh, so uh, aside from Israel, and we'll get to some of the places uh, of um, important, I mean, there's so many important places in Israel, we'll get to some of those coming up, but you have to include, obviously, uh, the Ukraine, Belarus, and Lithuania, Hungary, everyone in this audience understands why. Uh, but also you have to do some research when it comes to Egypt and Morocco and Czechoslovakia and France. Uh, I mean, were some of these countries or some of the information you were looking for more difficult to obtain or some of the photos more difficult to obtain than others? Uh, yes, some of them were. Uh, but Baruch Hashem, I had a lot of siyata dishmaya and a lot of heavenly divine assistance along the way with all of my books. Uh, you know, I could tell you many stories about how there was Hashem's hand guiding me at every step, finding things just when I needed them or bumping into the right people that connected me to other people. And, you know, clearly you know, this was something that was it's not something that I could fathom ever doing on my own. I, I know that 99, if not 100% of it was all from above. Unbelievable. Um, just uh, on a personal note, uh, because I can never resist <laughs> the personal notes when it comes to uh, my parents. You write about Rabaria Levin, and I've been there many, many times in the Sanhedria Cemetery in Yerushalayim because my parents are two graves away from Rabaria Levin. And, uh, and the reason they are there is because my father's wish was to be buried as close to him as possible uh, because of what he remembered of him from his youth in Jerusalem. And uh, if you remember, and I know it's not fair to put you on the spot because you have hundreds of, of, of different tombstones in the book, but if you remember what was written specifically on Rabari Levin's tombstone, that was significant? Of course. That's, that's one of the—I'm uh, happy you brought that one up because that puts into focus really the whole book. Uh, he insisted that on his tombstone be written the animamen about Tchiyas HaMesim. And he said that everyone that comes to his grave should say it should verbalize this particular animamin that there will be and the simple reason why he wanted that on his tombstone was because he wanted to give chizuk to people that were coming to visit him and presumably they were in the the the, the cemetery because either they wanted to visit their own relatives or that they had a tzara, some sort of uh, difficult period that they were going through that they wanted to come to his grave, to Davin. So this was intended to give chizuk to those people that were in mourning or were in difficult circumstances, that you should know that there will be another day, and tomorrow will come, and Tchiyas HaMesim will arrive, and you will be able to once again embrace those departed that you love. And that's the simple explanation. I wanted to add in my book, and I did, uh, uh, like a chiddush almost in why he put that particular 
um, phrase on his on his epitaph, and that is because that was who he was. Rav Aryeh Levine was somebody that was Mechaya Mason. He himself breathed life into everyone that he met, whether it was in a leper hospital, whether it was prisoners that were in a British prison during the, uh, you know, during the period that the British were controlling Eretz Yisrael. And whoever it was, it didn't matter their political affiliation, whether they were religious or not religious yet, he was so embracing and so loving and so caring that he was a, a figure that was universally, lo- universally loved. And because of that, I think that was like a huha ya'aymer. That was a defining animamin that really described his life. He was somebody that gave he revived the dead. Whoever was was disheartened and depressed and crushed, he was able to breathe life and happiness into. And so that was really a defining moment, uh, a defining um, statement of his life to whoever came to his grave. Unbelievable. In fact, you write, during the Six-Day War, an adored young soldier who was engaged to be married died in battle. The loss to his family was deep and traumatic. The only comfort they were able to achieve was when they visited the grave of Rabbi Levin as they read these holy words engraved on his tomb, reminding them that their profound loss is only temporary. They felt a sense of calm and comfort. Pretty amazing. Um, And um, you, you include in the book... I should say, I mean, obviously some of the, me at least, you know, some of the people you write about in the book I had not heard of, uh, but you don't, it's not just Torah giants that you are uh, uh, pointing out. You also have a, uh, you have stories of uh, of those who've made great sacrifices for Torah values. Uh, Sulika Hachuel, if I have that pronounced correctly, it's an amazing story about the sanctity of a Jewish woman. She's buried in Fez, and that would be a grave worthwhile visiting. Uh, and praying there because of the sacrifice that she made in order to preserve Torah values. And, and many people do make a special trip to Fez, Morocco, just to Davin by her kever. She was a, a martyr that uh, died al Kiddush Hashem of the highest order. She made a, a public uh, al Kiddush Hashem. She was a beautiful young Jewish girl who uh, uh, one of the Arabs in the, the local area saw her, fell in love with her, and wanted her to marry him and to, of course, convert first to Islam. And, uh, of course, she refused, and ultimately um, she caught the eye after all this, uh, you know, th- this terrible uh, chaos that ensued. She caught the eye of a prince of, of Morocco, and he wanted to marry her as well, and, and he offered her anything that she would want just to marry him. And she refused, and they publicly... Uh, um, killed her, and, uh, and they were able to uh, get her remains and bury them there, and people say that if they, you daven by that particular kever, you see tremendous Yeshua's, because you know she sacrificed so much, and she made such a public Kiddush Hashem that there's great holiness at that site. Unbelievable. Are you related to the Rabbi Bamberger that you mentioned in the book? Yes, that's my great-great-grandfather. Wow. Very proud of, very proud of our Yichas that's uh, was known as the Wurzberger Rav, Rabbi Yitzchak Dov Halevi Bamberger. He was uh, one of the Gedalei Hadar in Germany, and uh, he was a contemporary of Rav Shmuel Hirsch and the Aruch uh, And uh, yeah, he was a tremendous Adam Gadol, and uh, that was my father's great grandfather. His his son was my father's grandfather, 
uh, took over. He was a successor in the city of Würzburg, and they're buried outside of the, not in the actual city of Würzburg, but in a small cemetery in a little hamlet off of Würzburg called Hirschberg. And that's significant because he did not want to be buried in the main cemetery in Würzburg because there was some Chol Shabbos that was taking place in the building of something in the cemetery. And he said, if that continues, he will not be buried there. And it continued, and he insisted that after he died, he would be buried in Hirschberg and not in Würzburg. And the interesting thing is that during the, uh, when the Allies bombed Würzburg, they bombed out the entire cemetery, the Jewish cemetery of Würzburg, so his remains would not have been there. And because he was, uh, he insisted on being buried in Hirschberg, uh, people to go and visit him till today. Unbelievable. Um, people have an opportunity to really learn about our heritage, to learn where we come from, because often we only uh, emphasize the fact that uh, that these greats, uh, you know, rightfully spent their day, uh, you know, studying Talmud and, and studying the holy works. And sometimes we forget uh, some of the amazing things that they did in terms of leadership, uh, in terms of setting examples, in terms of little tidbits that you include that uh, uh, normally would be overlooked or wouldn't really make the headlines, so to speak. Uh, but they end up becoming really important in terms of understanding uh, just who preceded us. Uh, and it's wonderful that you brought those uh, uh, to the forefront. Um, what, what can you tell me about the will of Rav Rafal Hirsch? How did you obtain that, or is that just public information and, and it's something that's been circulated many times? No, that's not public information. It, uh, I actually found the original will in somebody, a descendant of Rav Hirsch, who lives in Bensonhurst today. Um, I went to his home and uh, came up with, he all of a sudden he pulled out this will, and uh, it was in perfect condition. I mean, there's still some, you know, there's some tape marks on it and stuff, but it was uh, in pristine condition, and it's an absolutely historic will, because he writes to his children something that I think, you know, all parents really would love to convey, but of course he had such a poetic pen that uh, he did it in a way that was... uh, unparalleled. And he said that, you know, your mother, who had already died, and myself, uh, we had such tremendous nachas from all of our children, uh, and each one of you have, Baruch Hashem, followed in our footsteps and have have continued in, in the derech of Torah and the derech of Hashem, which wasn't so simple back in the day of, you know, when reform was so dominant. But right. he said that the one thing that I request of all of you, on behalf of your mother and myself, is that after we die, please maintain peace and harmony between all of the siblings. I want that's, That would be the ultimate gift that you could give us if you would just promise to maintain. Because sometimes when parents are alive, that keeps the children sort of in line. But after they depart, you know, things happen. There are tensions that arise. And so he was so prescient, and he was able to see into the future and understand that if he doesn't command us, then it's very possible that that might occur. And he said that that was my one last will and testament, just that there should be peace and harmony amongst all of our descendants. And uh, that's often the case where uh, that's the last will of many who pass away. Um, their their request of the next generation doesn't always work out that way, but uh, there's no question that does emphasize just how important to peace and tranquility between brothers and sisters, in fact, is. All right, Moshe Bamberger is with us. I remind everybody that this week, 15% off, no minimum free shipping 
on all of our Moshe Bamberger's works, including the brand new one, Great Jewish Journeys to the Past, a spiritual travel guide to Kivrei Tzadikim and Torah landmarks around the world. Give me one more. Give me give me one more uh, epitaph. Give me one more uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, um, tombstone uh, of note that you would like to point out uh, and mention to our listeners as an inspiring one. Okay. Um, my father is a friend of Racha, um, and all of my relatives, my uncles, my grandparents, they're all uh, interred in a, in a cemetery in Clifton, New Jersey, uh, in the section of the Broyers community, the uh, Kaladasi Shuren in Washington Heights, the famous Broyers community. And, of course, the leaders of Broyers was Rav Breuer and Rav Shimon Schwab. Right. And Rav Schwab has a uh, very simple tombstone, and it just says who he was, where he was Rav before, you know, in Germany and in Baltimore, and then ultimately in Kaladesi Shur in Washington Heights. And he says that, uh, and then, and the shame Imai Chana, he says his you know, father's name, and then he mentions his mother's name was Chana. And then there's sort of like a, um, like a, a highlighted uh, pasuk on the bottom of the kever. And if you look in the paper, it's all the way at the end, and I put a very clear picture of it. And it says as follows, there's a pasuk in... Mishle, that says, If you try to cover up your sins, you will never succeed. But if you confess to them and you abandon them, then Hashem will have mercy on you. Very strange that Rav Schwab would put that pasuk of all psukim on his epitaph, like as if there was a message that he was trying to send, but it's a very cryptic message, because what does that mean? Rav Schwab was at Sadiq Yisrael, is he somehow like confessing his own sins? Uh, that's doubtful. Like, why would he, you know, what would, uh, what would the, the message be? So I inquired and I asked his sons, and what they told me is that we don't really know why he put that on his grave, but we have a hunch as to why, what he might have intended, and that is that whenever we did anything in life, whether, you know, every, every time we, we messed up or we sinned or we did something that disappointed him, his, his reaction always was, face the music. Don't try to hide and obfuscate and get around it and, and circumvent and, and, and bury you. Try to really, you know, face up and fess up and deal with it up front. Own, own the situation, own up to the problem. And that's the way you should deal with it. Don't try to get around anything. And, you know, just face, face the problem. Admit that you did something wrong. Do tshuva. Ask the person for mechila or ask Hashem for mechila. And then move on happily. And he says, and they told me that that's why they believe that their father put that on the grave. Wow. Because that's really what this Pasuk is telling you. That don't try to hide your sins. Don't try to, you know, to, to avoid it. Rather, own up to it. You will find people will be forgiving, but all you have to do is confess. You know, like we find in today's Inauguration Day, and, you know, we don't want to bring politics necessarily into this discussion, but, you know, they, they say that it's not the, it's not the sin, it's the cover-up. Right. It's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Right. Sometimes, you know, you do a crime, we're human beings, we have, our, we have our weaknesses, we have our moments that we sin, and that's all part of the design of a human being, but it's how we respond after that. How do you, do you try to cover it up, or do you try to, you know, to just confess and say, I did something wrong and I apologize? 
and people are very forgiving, and Hashem is very forgiving. But it's very important in life that when we do something wrong, we own the situation and we were able to tackle it robustly, and that way we could move on and feel proud of who we are fully. One could uh, give Musser from the grave, huh? Literally by what's written Absolutely. in their tombstone. No. That's really what the book is all about. Unbelievable. Really incredible. By the way, I'm just curious. <laughs> when you have visited Harmanuchot, did you ever see the uh, uh, the grave of Rav Shlomo Kalbach? I did, yes. I, 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 yeah. I, I only say it because that's one of those tombstones with a lot of information on it. You mentioned earlier some have few words, others have a tremendous amount written. That's one that has a tremendous amount written. And uh, his has, his fault. has a lot written, and it also has... You know that a special place for candles. Right. You know that are really primarily reserved for the biggest gedolim. They put one up there, and there's probably more candles there than you know than <laughs> many of the others on on Hamanucho. So yeah, it's it's really uh, it's quite a. I remember being by his Levaya. Um, it was up by the Karlbach Shul in Manhattan, yeah. and uh, I remember people were singing his songs as they were being Malava the Mace. It was yeah. quite a. Quite an incredible personality. I uh, I was there uh, along with you that day. Uh, right, Moshe Bamberger. In addition to um, uh, to the book, I just wanted to mention that uh, we, uh, when I introduced you, I said that you are Mashkiach Ruchani at the Lander College for Men, and we've gotten to know a lot about the Turo and Lander over the last few weeks, including yesterday when um, uh, Dean Marion uh, Stoltz Loiki was with us from the Lander uh, College uh, for Women. Is is um, is it di- is it different? Being a mashkiach ruchani in a Zoom era, much different, much different. <laughs> it's uh, I, we try to we try to make it as as normal as possible, but you know it's pretty impossible to do that. Uh, Zoom is actually a very powerful tool, and I think that you know there ha- there there will be uses for it after the COVID era era as well. You know we've learned a lot about society at large and about how we how we like functioning, and, and I think, you know, society will shift fundamentally because of what we've learned throughout COVID. But I'll tell you, like, an example that somebody just told me the other day. I get a lot of calls about Shidduchim being in Lander College for Men. Um, you know, I try to dabble in it myself a little, but uh, a woman called me from Toronto, and she told me that, you know, her her children, she had two children that got engaged, and one is getting married soon, and it all took place because of because of Zoom, you know, and I found that also with a few of my tell me them that they never would have necessarily gone out with certain girls because they were out of town, you know, who wants to schlep to uh, right. Detroit or to California or, or to Mexico if you're sitting in New York and you have uh, thousands of girls in the tri-state area, but suddenly because of Zoom, it sort of was the great equalizer and people, you know, you read a shidduch to somebody and it's okay, sure, why not? It's just a, it's just a Zoom call and, uh, and a lot of times it clicks. And so I think shidduchim will be fundamentally changed uh, after the COVID era, era even and, uh, and definitely chinuch, there might be opportunities to, you know, to zoom shiurim into places that, uh, that are not normally accessible. So in terms of chinuch, it's definitely, definitely a very pale comparison to live, normal uh, opportunities to teach in a classroom setting. But I do think that there are a lot of, uh, a lot of wonderful elements to Zoom as well. Rabbi Moshe Bamberger, Mashkiach Ruchani at the Lender College for Men. He is author of uh, Great Jewish Letters, Great Jewish Speeches, Great Jewish Wisdom, Great Jewish Treasures, Great Jewish Classics, Great Jewish Photographs, and now 
Great Jewish Journeys to the Past, a spiritual travel guide to Kivrei Tzadikim and Torah landmarks around the world. You have to check out uh, the words and photos in this book, everybody. Very valuable, an amazing way for people of all ages to learn so much about Jewish history from one book. Right, Bamberger, congratulations. Mazel tov on the book. It is really remarkable. We'll continue to recommend it. And uh, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Abnach. I just want to just thank you. I know that everybody, you know, loves you and appreciates you, but it's important that personally that I, I share with you, I guess, with the Shliach Tzibor, how much you mean to Klal Yisrael, and you, you give so much in terms of Chizuk and Hizaris and Avas Yisrael and, 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 and music, and all that you do for Klal Yisrael is really, uh, you deserve so much credit for the wonderful generation that's being produced. Uh, and I think you 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 owed a lot of hakar sapet. I I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for that, Rai Bamberger. Uh, continued success, and again, Mazal Tov on the book. Thank you, Reb Nachum. Be well, Rabbi Moshe Bamberger. I, I have goosebumps from what he just said, frankly, and I thank him, and I'm somewhat speechless, frankly. Rai Moshe Bamberger. Um, all of his works, all of his books, and I'm telling you, one is better than the next. The photographs, and I hear what he says that our mayor's lotto, it's a blessed memory, had so much influence on the way these books would be presented. A lot of people wouldn't, uh, honestly, a lot of people wouldn't look at these books if the pictures and the format was not as beautiful as it is. That's, that's the reality. And it's so appealing. It's just incredible. So appealing. Um, anyway, anything w- written by Rabbi Bamberger, uh, 15% off. No minimum, free shipping this week and this week only from artscroll.com when you use promo code radio. You must use promo code radio. I've been telling you for months how valuable that promo code is. Please, (laughs) always remember to put it in when you're on artscroll.com. But now you'll save even more on all of Ryan Bamberger's works. So do so and enjoy. That was my conversation with Ryan Moshe Bamberger. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty more coming up. Keep it right here on NSN, the Nahum Siegel Network.